Welcome to another episode of Exploring Our Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative queers. I'm your host, Keira. I am delighted to have Anna and Diego. Welcome to Exploring Our Podcast. Today, we'll discuss the significant misunderstanding that Ambrose Ballard created with the artworks the Diana Beatty, Diana and Acción, and Temptation of St. Anton. But before we dive into it, I'm going to read the case study. In his memoir, Ambrose Ballard, the 19th century art dealer, close to putting at the same painting of female news in an old frame for an exhibit, but forgetting to remove the title of the former canvas, Diana and Actium. The press describes the work as Diana Bating and praises the picture of the goddess surrounded by her virgin. Shortly thereafter, Bollard agreed to launch the temptation of St. Anton to another exhibition. To his horror, he discovered that he had already sold the St. Anton, so he sent the Diana Anton instead. However, the title, Temptation of St. Anton, had already been entered in the catalog. The press, which had previously praised the novel of Polybis, Diana and the Persians, now praised the sly, beguiling smile in one of the daughters of Satan. Did the press make mistakes? Did Polar? Her titles have helped her hydrants in interpreting art. Later, Polar told the story to the saint, who was quite indifferent, saying that he had no particular subject in mind at all, and was just trying to render certain kinds of movements. Was he writing his own concern? Now, before we get started the discussion of the case, we need to understand who these people were. So we want to provide some background of who Polar and Sustain were, as well as some information of the 19th century, so we can center ourselves into the story more easily. So, who was Ambrose Polar? Well, Ambrose Vallard was a French art dealer. He's now recognized as one of the most significant figures in French modern art. He was born on July 3, 1866, and grew up at St. Denis Reunion, a French territory in the Indian Ocean. After his final exams in La Reunion, he moved to France in 1885 to study law. He spent some time in Montpellier before transferring to École de Droit in Paris, where he earned his degree in 1888. As a clerk for an art dealer during his studies, Villard transformed himself into an amateur merchant and opened his own gallery in 1893 at Royal Lafitte, which was at the time the hub of Parisian market for modern art. There, Villard organized his first significant show. In 1930, Villard hired Picasso to create the first Picasso exhibition. The partnership between them, which ended up being in one of the most well-known print series of the century, was without a doubt the source of his greatest success. In 1895, Vallard purchased over 150 of Cézine's work to make his debut exhibition. You know, Vallard also worked with Cézine and other artists like Aristide Maillol, Pierre-Augustin Renoir, and Louis Renoir. Nowadays, they are all recognized for benefiting from his visibility and emo emotional support when they were previously unknown. He used to promote artists principally through one-man exhibitions, known as the solo show, which was a form established in the mid-19th century by Dural Rule, where each artist's artwork was exhibited 
severely. For our term, was full of contradictions and remains a somewhat enigma. Opinions about him differed widely. Some artists, like Henri Matisse, complained that the dealer exploited them, saying his name with the French word "ver" meaning to. Others, however, valued his loyalty and generosity, like Chassaigne, who remained loyal and grateful to him for bringing him out of his obscurity. Valrod was killed in July 1939, at the age of 73, in his way to Paris when his chauffeur car skidded off the road. He died without direct heirs. Much of the art was left to extended family and close friends, although a significant number of works apparently were sold, dispersed, or disappeared during the war. We know from his journal that he was responsible for the confusion with Sidney's painting. We should discuss his name before we go on. We certainly should. Paul Cézanne was born in the southern French town of Aix-en-Provence, January 19, 1839. From the very start, he was drawn to the more radical elements of Parisian art world. He especially admired the romantic painter Eugène Delacroix and among the young masters, Gustave Corbett and Edouard Manet who exhibited realistic paintings that were shocking in both style and subject matter. Many of Cézanne's early works were painted in dark tones applied with heavy, fluid pigments, suggesting the moody, romantic expressionism of previous generations. He gradually developed a commitment to the rep representation of contemporary life, painting the world he observed without much concern for idealization or affection. That's right. The most significant influence on the work of his early maturity began, began after he befriended Camille Pizarro, an older but at the time and recognized painter. Pizarro not only provided moral encouragement to the same, but he also introduced him to the new impressionist technique for rendering outdoor life, along with the painters Claude Monet, Auguste Renoir, and a few others, Pizarro had developed a painting style that involved working outdoors in plain air, rapidly and on reduced scale, made of small touches of pure color, generally without the use of sketches or outlines. On the Pizarro's tutelage between 1972 and 1973, Cisane shifted from dark tones to bright hues and began to concentrate on scenes of farmland and rural village. In general, the impressionists did not have much commercial success, so Cézanne's work received very harsh critical commentary. Cézanne's goal was, in his own mind, never fully attained. He left most of his works unfinished and discouraged many others. He complained of his failure at rendering the human figure, and we can see it in his last years the revelation of curious distortions that seemed to be dictated by the very rigor of system of color he imposed on his own representation. We can see that in one of his most famous paintings, The Large Shadows. The succeeding generation of painters, though, came to be receptive to nearly all of Cézanne's peculiar art style. Cézanne's heirs felt that the naturalistic painting of Impressionism had become formalized, and a new and original style, however difficult it might be, was needed to return a sense of sincerity and commitment to modern art. It was widely appreciated toward the end of his life for insisting that painting the same touch with his material. 
PhD sculptor origin, also known as a master of taste, as after his ancestral home in the south of France, the saint applied his pigments to the canvas in a series of discrete methodical brushstrokes, as though we were constructing a picture rather than painting it. Thus, his work remains true to an underlying architectural idea. Every portion of the canvas should contribute to its overall structural integrity. This is this master picture, even a simple apple may display a dissimilar sculptural dimension. It is as if each item of still life, landscape, or portrait had been expanded not from one but several angles. Its material properties, then combined by the artist, has no mere copy, but as what is being called a harmony parallel to nature. It was this aspect of Sistine's political time-based practice that led the future Cubists to regard him as their true mentor. Both his style and his theory remain mysterious and cryptic. He seemed to some a naive primitive, while to others he was a sophisticated master of technical procedure. The intensity of his color, coupled with the apparent rigor of his compositional organization, signaled to most that, despite the artist's own frequent despair, he had synthesized the basic expressive and representational elements of painting in a highly original manner. In addition to his role as an important post-impressionist, Cezanne is celebrated as the forefather of Fauvism. By focusing on the angles of each object independently, rather than keeping a single perspective of the entire subject, Cezanne gave his paintings an almost blurred effect. Cezanne's method produced an abstracted appearance that was only slightly distorted and ultimately proved essential to Cubism. Artists like Matisse, Picasso, Gauguin, Brock, Kandinsky, and Modrain were all greatly influenced by him. He was an innovator who experimented with shape and form in ways that were unheard of in his time. Given his prominence in these groundbreaking genres, Cezanne is regarded as one of the most influential figures in the history of modern art. Now, to understand better why his art became such a phenomenon, we should talk a little bit about the 19th century art in France. In other words, the Impressionist movement. We have to note, though, that Cezanne was a post-Impressionist. That's right. In the 19th century French, art belongs to Impressionists. Two artists we previously mentioned, like Monet, Renoir, Manet, Pizarro, and Morisot, it began in 1862 and ended in 1892, and it is still known as one of the most prominent movements of the century. This artist style movement centered around capturing a fleeting movement moment in time often often outdoors. The artist focused on the world as it is and shifted away from forms of idealizations, history, and mythology. The artists were deemed radical for their loose brush work, an experimental approach to light and color that veer away from realistic representation. This artist style presented everything from smudgy seascapes, gardens, farmlands, and picnics, to posterous dance halls, household interiors, and city streets. All these views of the emerging modern world. We can appreciate that in the paintings of the time, such as sunrise in a park and Paris street, 
That is so clear because I don't have I don't even have to describe the wall paintings in detail for you to know what these paintings are about or how they look because their names and knowledge of the dominant aspects of the times art is enough. Also, I would like to mention that this style of movement came to be partially as a result of the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. People had more free time to stop and chances to perceive the world around them, and thus we can see the shift of all of it in the art style of the time. Now, post-impressionists emerged towards the end of the 19th century, carrying into the 20th century with painters like Cézanne, Seurat, and Van Gogh. Inspired by Cézanne's strong palette and style, Fauvism became one of the earliest forms of modern art. Now that we can start an historical perspective on this important artist and age, we can focus on his, on how, um, in his memoirs, Bob tells of putting a same painting of female news in an old frame for an exhibit, but forgetting to remove the title of the former Congress, Diana and Axiom. The image of the goddess surrounded by her version, we know was claimed by the media who referred to the piece of Diana Baden. Before we continue with this interesting case, we must know the story of Diana and Axiom. We really do. Their story is really well known for those who know of mythology. Diana is a goddess who is largely revered as the protector of the countryside, hunters, crossroads, and the moon. She is equated with the Greek goddess Artemis and absorbed much of Artemis' mythology early in Roman history, including a birth on the island of Delos to parents Jupiter and Latona and a twin brother, Apollo. Diana is considered a virgin goddess and protector of childbirth. Historically, Diana made up a tribe with two other Roman deities, Egeria, the white ninth, her servant and assistant midwife, and Virbius, the woodland god. Diana is revered in modern neopagan religions, including Roman neopaganism, Estrella, and Wicca. In the ancient, medieval, and modern periods, Diana has been considered a triple deity, merged with a goddess of the moon, Selene, and the underworld, usually Ecate. To narrate the myth as it is told, the tale recounts the unfortunate fate of a young hunter named Actaeon, who was a grandson of Cadmus, and his encounter with the goddess Artemis, known to the Romans as Diana, goddess of the hunt. The latter is nude and enjoying a bath in a spring with help from her escort of nymphs when the mor mortal man unwittingly stumbles upon the scene. The nymphs scream in surprise and attempt to cover Diana, who, in a fact of embarrassed furry, splashes water upon Actaeon. He is transformed into a deer with a dappled hide and long antlers, robbed of his ability to speak, and thereafter promptly flees in fear. It is not long, however, before his own hounds track him down and kill him, failing to recognize their master. As the tale gets to be told, public opinion always varies. Some think that the goddess seems more violent than was just. Others praise her and call her worthy of her austere, stern, harsh, virginity. And each side finds reasons for their point of view. It was a very shocking story to the first time I read about it. The paintings do a very good job of capturing the sense of it. That's true. 
Now, after four misplaced the same painting with a pocket, namely Diana and Axon, he later sends the same painting in place of the painting Temptation of St. Anthony to another exhibition, where his first first slide with being smiled in one of the daughters of the pen. I found the painting Temptation of St. Anthony to be very intriguing. Indeed it is. It is an often repeat, 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 Subject in the history of art and literature concerning the supernatural temptation reportedly faced by Saint Anthony the Great during his sojourn in the Egyptian desert. The common medieval subject included in the Golden Legend and other sources shows Saint Anthony being tempted or assailed in the desert by demons whose temptations he resisted. The temptations of Saint Anthony is a more common name of the subject. The temptation of San Anthony has always been a popular theme for many artists like Michelangelo, Hieronymus Bosch, Salvador Dali, and Max Ernst, who all created their own paintings for this subject. See saying complete three paintings on the same theme. This version is the saint's last known working of a subject that had often been represented since the time of Hieronymus Bosch and also described by many 19th century writers. During a period when most of Sissin's works dealt with erotic subjects and murders, this conventional scene appears to be a representation of the mastering of the sexual conflicts too, that beset the painter at this time. The temptress, who is placed in the center of the picture, unveils herself with a triumphant gesture. But she is standing some distance from the hermit, unlike another version of the scene, in which she assaults him relentlessly. The devil, who appears on the left, left seems to be playing a dual role. He's inciting the temptress as well as us, paradoxically, appearing to be the protector to whom the sign clings. A circle of cherubs gives the work the lightness of the spirit of an 18th century singalat. In this painting, the woman, an object of both adoration and fear, does not seem to be absolute corrupt of their early versions. Just something of a classical goddess. We've covered a lot of stuff by now. I think we're ready to dive into the final question of the case. Who's at fault? How does the media side of playing to all of it? Does it help or is it a hindrance? Is the same writing his uncle, sir? Like, what do you guys think about that? I think that, like, at least they should have said that they make a mistake with the painting and tell them, tell it to the friends because the friends took the idea wrong. So that's right. He never actually says that he owned his mistake like that, that he told the people about it. We only know about this case because of the memoirs. Their friends never correct the, the mistake. So I don't know. The picture of a goddess that someone that was a goddess to a temptress is not right with me. It doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, because like, you know, if this the same painting with different names is like it's huge. That it gives such a different understanding, right? Yeah. What do you think, Diego? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you guys. I I think it was just a a, a misunderstanding, and I don't, I don't think it's right. 
with with the paintings and the and the picture of the goddess in them. Yeah, it did shock me a little bit. Though. Like at the beginning, when I first read the case, like how Sistine says that he's like unconcerned about it. He doesn't really care because he doesn't have a subject in mind. And at first I thought like, why would you not care, right? It's like, it's your work and it has a name for a reason. Right. Yeah. But when you look at like the time that the Impressionism and all that, and you read about like, the art of the group was about the world around them, right? Mm -hmm. And about the emotions, romanticizing perhaps, and all that stuff. So for them to do that, they have to have a certain kind of mindset. So it kind of makes sense that he wouldn't care at the same time. Yeah, it's very strange. Like he just let it pass and let people think whatever they want to. If his work, so he should have said something or do something about it. Exactly, yeah. But at the same time, you know, so well, it's a personism. It's at the same time all about the same stuff, the same message, if you think about impressionism as a art style. So if both paintings were the same art style, it would have a little bit of sense, I think, for him. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for joining us so much today, and Diego, I appreciate it. This concludes Exploring Our Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Our Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us soon, and remember to stay curious.